When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, camping is one of America's favorite pastimes. About 50 million Americans head out into the wilderness each year to refresh and reinvigorate themselves. And while it may seem like camping as a recreational activity has always been around, camping as we know it today is actually relatively new. For most of human history, camping is what you did during war or on a hunting or fishing expedition. It wasn't something you just did for the fun of it, just in and of itself. So how did camping become a modern pastime? My guest today explores the answer to this question in his latest book, his name is Terrence Young, and his book is entitled Heading Out, History of American Camping. Terrence and I begin our show discussing how camping got its start as an anti-modern revolt after the Civil War, and the New England minister who wrote a book that would kickstart the camping craze in America in the 19th century. Terry then shares how businesses responded to the growing number of campers in America by creating and marketing products and goods to make camping easier, and how these products began a debate about which sort of camper is the most authentic kind, a debate that remains ongoing today. We end our conversation talking about the rituals of camping, why all campsites in America look exactly the same or pretty much, and the state of camping in America today. This is a great episode to listen to on your way to a weekend camping trip or when you're dreaming of your next outing on the way to work. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash heading out. Terrence Young, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. So you wrote a history of one of my all-time favorite activities, camping. And this really, this after reading this book, I'm, I'm looking at camping now with completely new eyes. Like I'm looking at campsites differently because I, I know how, why campsites look the way they do and why there's like the one-way loop and all that thing. But what I found most interesting about this book was that for some reason, I've always thought of camping as sort of this recreational activity, right? This sort of thing that humans have always done for fun for a long time. But then when you think about it, it's like, that doesn't make any sense. But it, so you point out in the book that camping for the sake of camping is actually a relatively new concept. So when did camping become just a, an activity that people just did for the sake of doing it? Well, as you say, Brett, camping is, in a sense, is ancient, right? As Probably as long as there have been people, people have camped, but they didn't camp for fun. You know, they camped because they had to. The idea of camping, actually, the word comes from the military word campaign, to engage in a campaign, and they had to set up encampments. And so there were camps, you know, like Camp Lejeune or things like this. 
camping as a recreational activity in some ways initially came along, at least in America, with hunting and fishing. But uh, hunters and fishers would go out to do that, to hunt and fish, but they had to camp uh, as a kind of, you know, adjunct to hunting and fishing. It's only after the U.S. Civil War ended in 1865 that we start to see people going camping just to camp, that they might hunt and fish, and there were still many people still going hunting and fishing and then had to camp. But this is when we first see this, uh, the appearance of the idea that camping itself is a form of recreation. So I'm curious, I mean, what what was it about postbellum America, the, the cultural milieu of it, that made people start camping just for camping's sake? The northern part of the country boomed. The economy boomed and uh, industry was growing and the cities like New York, Boston, Hartford, Philadelphia, they were growing very rapidly in population and getting much larger. Along with this industrialization and urbanization of America came a lot of regulation, a lot of uh, pollution, noise, uh, smoke, things like this, a lot of crowding, a lot of strangers that uh, people didn't uh, know. And this was all new to uh, Americans. They There had been cities like New York before the Civil War, but they'd largely been relatively small, and the vast majority of Americans had lived in small towns and on farms and, you know, tiny settlements and stuff. And uh, this new experience uh, caused a sort of, I would say, identity crisis, if you will, amongst people who weren't sure, uh, you know, who am I in a way, and, and is this still America? And one of the things uh, amongst many that they turned to was uh, camping, camping going back uh, with this kind of romantic idea of nature as relief, uh, as whatever solution, anodyne to their sense of like, oh, am I really in the right place being here in the city? They didn't want to leave the city because that's where the jobs were. That's where the money was. But uh, they wanted some relief from the city and uh, camping seemed to fill the bill. Right. So in a way, it was sort of an anti-modern revolt in a sort of, you know, in a... Yes. But yeah, you said that this was among other things. This was sort of, um, besides camping, I, I know during the, that this same period, people got really into arts and crafts. It's like when the arts and crafts movement started in Europe and America and people were all about, I'm going to build things with my hands and rustic things are great things because, you know, it's not tainted by urbanization or technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And, and we do, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons the arts and crafts movement rose was because people were increasingly in jobs where they didn't make anything from beginning to end. Right. They, uh, whatever made a part that was assembled into something larger. And so they didn't necessarily see a completion to their actions. And, uh, they, they came to, they came enamored of, uh, this idea of doing things themselves and having control and finishing something. And camping's a part of that whole larger movement. Right. So, so one of the individuals, most influential individuals in the sort of kickstarting the camping movement in America, never heard of this guy, but he's a pretty interesting character. His name is William H.H. H. Murray. What was it about his book that he wrote? It's called Adventures in the Wilderness that helped kickstart the camping craze. 
Well, Murray, uh, for a little background on him, Murray was a Congregationalist minister from Boston. He was actually the head of the Park Street Church, which is probably the most significant or was the most significant congregational church in America. He was a graduate of Yale. He was a very educated gentleman. He was a very enthusiastic outdoorsman. He especially loved canoeing. And the thing about his book is, uh, his book is, I think, kicks off camping for a number of reasons. One, it's accessible. It's still in print. It's it's well-written. He's funny. He's sort of uh, self-reflectively funny. But most importantly, unlike anybody before him, he basically came right out and flatly said, well, how do you camp? He told people how to do it. People, uh, writers before him hadn't really said that. They just assumed everyone knew how. And, of course, most urban people in 1869, when Adventures in the Wilderness was published, most urban people, they didn't have any idea about how to go camping into the wild. They lived in the city. His book told them how. You know, you needed to go here or do that. He told them how, where to go into the Adirondacks in particular. And he told them why. And I think that why was also very important. Important because what he did was he addressed the anxieties that um, urban people in the post-Civil War era were feeling. You know, he came right out and said, yes, the reason you don't feel good is you work in an office, it's crowded, your boss is a pain, these sorts of things. And he was the first one to come right out and say it. And he was a minister saying this. And I think it gave him uh, a lot of uh, clout. You know, and, uh, you know, it's a combination of a well-written book, useful book, informative book, and one that explained why you'd want to go camping. And people took him at his word and immediately took off and started camping. And how much of an impact did this book have? Like, how many people started camping because of him? And how did it change the Adirondacks and the economy there and just not of people there? Well, it's it's... It's hard to say exactly how many people were affected directly by Murray's book, but we know that he made a fortune <laughs> on the book. He made $25,000 in the first year of sales of the book. And this is at a time when the average uh, or per capita income in the U.S. is under $200 a year. So he made an enormous amount of money so that we know lots of copies were sold. And uh, in the Adirondacks, they directly felt it in the year prior to um, his book coming out, a couple of hundred people showed up at Saranac Lake during the whole season to go uh, and you know into the backwoods and stuff. The year that Murray's book is written, 1869, that it's published, they got at least two to 3,000 people. So they had a 10 to 15 time increase in the number of people camping. And then the following year, 1870, they, there was at least 5,000 people or more show up. So this is a tremendous increase in the number of people going to the Adirondacks. And what was camping like at this time? I mean, who who were the type of people going and how did they get there and how what kind of stuff did they bring for them to to camp? Uh well, there relatively few people actually go camping compared to the total size of the population in the 19th century. This is for a bunch of reasons, but particularly it's mostly upper middle class people who can 
who go camping. And that's largely because you had to have a lot of money. It's not cheap to go camping in, in 1880, say, uh, and you needed time. You had to be able to, and mo- most Americans didn't have vacations in the 19th century, most working Americans. And so you had to have your own business or profession or be able to sell uh, or, or save enough money to be able to do this. So class people and a few wealthy people that are going, they didn't take much gear, there wasn't much gear that we would – the kind of things we would think of today, They're just most of them didn't exist in the 19th century. So what they would take was relatively heavy and cumbersome and difficult to move around, which means there were not a lot of people who walked as campers like backpacking, just a handful of them. There's a fair number of people who went on horseback or in canoes, things like this. Uh, again, a few who would go uh, with a horse and wagon, but a horse and wagon was very expensive, and uh, a lot of you know you had to sort of get a bunch of people together to do it. And when they went camping, mostly um, they went nearby. You know, they would just say, "Take the train, uh, you know, two stops past the edge of town, get off, walk out along some river and into uh, you know the edge of a farm field, and plop down and start camping." Um, they didn't, they, they were perfectly happy to just go, you know, basically nearby. Only the wealthy, I mean, and the truly wealthy could go long distance to some place like Yellowstone or to Yosemite or something like that. Since most of the people who are camping at this time in the 19th century, of course, live in the northeastern part of the U.S. and Yellowstone's a long way away. So you had to have a lot of time and money to be able to do that. Yeah, and and during this time, even after Murray's book, this like whole marketplace for camping literature just sprung up, and articles started proliferating in magazines about camping. And as you said, they talked about the benefits as like it's a way to recoup from the stressful life of the city. But you know, even though this was primarily an upper middle class activity, one of the benefits that these publishers pushed or these writers pushed was that camping was economical. It was like an economic recreational activity. Yes. Yeah, they I mean they, uh, it is a, a common trope you hear because I'm sure people were um cautious, you know, they somebody say, "Well, you should go camping for, you know, two weeks or a month." And they're going, "Yeah, but that's extra cost, you know." And so there was uh many as you point out, there are many articles that were published saying, "Oh, no, no, you know, it's so inexpensive to go camping." That in fact you can uh, keep your house and and go camping and your you know overall expenses will be reduced or at least no no higher than what you're already experiencing because you can catch your food you know you can go out and catch fish you don't have to buy meat something like this you know you you don't need to uh, buy fuel you could just get the fuel from the forest or something along those lines so yeah there was a lot of effort to sort of uh, convince. people people don't worry this is not going to cost you a great deal of money and also it's in in the light of people who of this class who one of the things they would typically do on vacations if they had the time and money was they would go to hotels say uh, you know in Saratoga or uh, something like this and that's very expensive uh, to do to stay to have a room for two weeks and eat at one of these places. And so, camping they the people who promoted camping were were situating it in this sort of like, yeah, you can do all those things, but th- you'll do this, you'll have a better time, and it won't cost you so much. And so, as you said, they just kind of plopped their 
tent wherever. So at this time, there still wasn't an infrastructure for camping. Did conservationists at that, because when the conservation movement was starting to pick up, were they concerned about the effect that campers were having on the environment and on forest because of their sort of indiscriminate camping? Uh, generally speaking, no. There was, I've come across very little in the, you know, kind of like be careful or anything like that, or gosh, we have to control the campers. Although I've, having said that, there are people who do note that there's problems from this. The Forest Service, when it first gets money, the U.S. Forest Service, when it first gets money to develop camping facilities, it does so as an effort to prevent fires. Or the Park Service, in one of the things the Park Service did them, the rangers did most commonly at first was give people tickets for um, leaving fires unattended. Fire was a particularly special concern. And John Muir, uh, again, as unsurprisingly, one of the things he noted in the late 19th century was uh, that campers were polluting streams. He was one of the first people to sort of mention it. And uh, yeah, in fact, used it as part of his uh, campaign against Hetch Hetchy and Yosemite Park. But uh, generally speaking, conservationists didn't seem much concerned with the impacts of campers. Yeah, and they might have probably liked it because it got people in nature and maybe helped promote the cause a bit. They're like, oh, this is nice. Yeah. So how did – so we had all this proliferation of campers in the, the middle to late 19th century. How did the market respond to America's camping craze? Because whenever there's a craze in America, there's always a company out there trying to capitalize on that. Um, so what sort of businesses popped up during this time uh, that catered to campers? Well, I, I think you can sort of put them into three kinds of groups. One is there were lots of small companies popped up to provide all sorts of items, whether those were, say, imagine, if you will, before there's much camping equipment, people had to mostly bring plates uh, that would be ceramic, you know, or they would bring, um, you know, cookware uh, that didn't nest or fit into each other and stuff. So initially, uh, companies sprang up to sort of say, okay, look, we can sell you cutlery that fits inside your cups, which can be stacked in together and uh, all of these pots and and pans they can all be nested together and they basically these companies tried to provide greater convenience and comfort um and and they made all sorts of things all kinds of efforts at cooling uh, ice chests there's ice chests in the 19th century uh, cookware in particular is one of the things that people go after clothing uh, manufacturers are trying to provide tents but most of these companies they made a product and then they pretty much disappeared you know they didn't last very long there for whatever variety of reasons in addition to them there were businesses which recognized they which already had a product and then recognized that their product would have had a new market potential for a new market that was campers so for instance ivory soap uh, which was the company that initially made ivory soap begins in 1840 long before camping and they're selling soap to you know people in homes and stuff like that but then uh in the mid mid to late 19th century 
campers come up and Ivory starts promoting its product to campers. You know, it's clean. It can clean anything. It floats. You know, you're not going to lose the bar of soap if you start washing in the stream. And there's a variety of these kinds of companies. Uh, Eagle Brand Condensed Milk is another one. And uh, that, that again and again, they, they say, ah, we have a product. Let's market it to um, campers too. And, uh, and a lot of these, you know, you can still, you know, if you go in a, into uh, camping supply stores or sporting goods stores, you still find products made by companies that generally you don't think of as camping companies, but they make a product that fits camping and it gets sold in a sporting goods store. And then lastly, there are those businesses which sprang up and continued and lasted. They sprang up to make a product for campers, and um, they've lasted all the way through. And uh, the one I always think of that I remember most is Airstream Trailers, say. Now, they're at the beginning of the 20th century, but Airstream was one of many trailer companies, most of which failed uh, ultimately. But there they are still putting out Airstreams, and people still love them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is uh, after about – 1880, there's a real awareness that camping is a, is a market, that there's a big market of campers, and uh, you don't want to pass them up. Yeah, but what this, the, the market introduced all these comforts, they introduced this debate that we still yes. see amongst campers, right, about what is, what is real <laughs> camping? Um, you know, like backpackers will say, well, no, we're the legit campers because we just take everything we need in, don't bring anything out. Um, you know, the the car campers think, well, we're better than the the trailer campers because at least we're sleeping in a tent. Um, did this debate exist back then in the early days of camping? Oh, yes. <laughs> right from the very beginning. Um, I, I think we, if we recognize or if we accept the idea that camping is a sort of anti-modern activity that it's and that part of the modern world is technologies, What I, one of the reasons I think campers – divide along these different mode lines of modes, backpacking, trailer camping, canoe camping, car camping. I think one of the reasons they do that is they, they're willing to accept different levels of technological uh, presence in, uh, in, the, in nature with them. And that tension has never ended. I mean, uh, totally. I, I mean, I, I feel it myself. I love to go camping, uh, and uh, you know, and and I'm sure I've made more than one, you know, observation that well, I would never use that kind of equipment or something. But camping is um, sort of camping is what campers do. You know, if they're happy with it and they feel good about it and it satisfies them, I think we have to accept that. Um, you know, it is camping. Might not be the kind of camping I or somebody else would care to practice, and maybe I wouldn't feel the pleasure and the, the relief, and, you know, release from camping in uh, somebody else's mode with a trailer or with a backpack or whatever. Nevertheless, I, th- I think it's clear that the people who do use those kinds of uh, technologies, they are enjoying themselves. They are having a good time. It does work for them, but it doesn't make them any more <laughs> satisfied with the other kinds of camping. Right. You know, there's a lot of ritual around camping, even today, right? Like you, first thing you do, you get to a spot, you you, play, you pitch your tent, then you get the fire going, then you get, maybe you have a chuck box, you get that going. Were these rituals started back in the 19th century when camping was 
first getting going? In the 19th century, there's not so much of that. But but in the 20th century, uh, at, the, at the very beginning, late end of the 19th, very beginning of the 20th century, um, it starts to appear. You start to see it in magazines and uh, and in uh, how-to books and stuff like this. Um, because you start to see articles appearing in, say, wintertime in a magazine, you know, Ladies Home Journal or something like this, uh, Popular Mechanics or something, talking about, well, now summer's coming. You know, you, you want to get ready for that camping trip. You know, you got to start planning it. You got to start thinking about it. And I think we see this at the, this is, and this is not exclusive to camping, I think. But at the beginning of the uh, 20th, end of the 19th century, they start to, to there's this literature that says, ima- imagination's the first thing you do. Is imagine where are you going to go? Then you plan it, then assemble it all. And finally, you know, when you're going to go and, and uh, get out there. But the one activity I think that has become most identified, I think, with camping, one of those rituals, which does go right back to the very beginning, is the campfire. I mean, uh, you can see people talking about be sure to have a campfire, you know, right in the 1870s, uh, right after Murray's book and virtually every first early books written about uh, camping. They'll illustrate them with campfires, people standing around campfires. It's clearly uh, something that that, uh, has a a strong ritual meaning for uh, campers, no matter what kind of mode they practice. Yeah. So what I think that was interesting too, you bring up this point was by the early 20th century, the frontier in America pretty much closed. Like all the states that were once territories were states. Like I live in Oklahoma, 1907, Oklahoma was a state. A few years later, Arizona was a state. So there's this closing of the frontier. How did that closing of the frontier affect how Americans viewed camping? Well, um, this idea, which was um, made, um, well, whatever, widely known by Frederick Jackson Turner, the historian, 1890s. Uh, when people came to think of the, the uh, frontier is closing, it wasn't until that it was going away that they came to think, you know, this is how we became Americans. You know, the frontier was the place where immigrants from other countries, other parts of the world, other parts of America, they'd move out onto the frontier. And even if they weren't, you know, kind of true Americans in a way, the interaction between them and the frontier left Americans behind, that it created Americans. So it was us, it was people interacting with the American frontier. Well, when it when it is officially declared gone and closed, camping it becomes a, a much more of a. It starts to be presented in in uh, literature as like, look, this is this is how you got to get to the frontier. This is all that's left. This is we don't have that actual frontier anymore, but we do have wild places. What do you do? You go camping. Uh, it's the closest thing we we're going to be able to do. And importantly, you take your children to go camping too, because this is how you can be sure that uh, they'll get that experience that your forebears, that the pioneers had. You know, they'll they'll have that same experience, and they'll end up being rugged and tough and self, uh, you know, self-supporting and this sort of thing. So camping uh, sort of got kicked up a notch by the uh, culturally by this idea that the frontier was gone. Right. I mean, another idea of the the frontier thesis was that 
front, the frontier is like what made democracy work in America, right? Because the frontier, you could go out and everyone was pretty much the same, whether you were a banker from East or some, you know, roughneck or cowboy, like you were sort of on the level because you're out facing nature with each other. Yes. And um, this is, uh, uh, again, a common uh, sort of recognition on the part of individual campers. You can find it in their diaries, talking about meeting people of all sorts of walks of life and being really pleased and getting along with them. They could go camp in Yellowstone or Yosemite or, you know, uh, any Great Smoky Mountains or something. And they would meet these people and uh, they all came back feeling like, yeah, I'm an American, they're an American. We're all Americans here, you know, out here in the woods and doing this sort of thing. And, uh, uh, you know, the parks and the forests promoted that, this idea, you know, you, these are America's playgrounds. And by that, they mean, you know, this is where all Americans can come, all of us. And um, I, I think that that notion still persists. You know, I, I, this is my own experience with camping is that uh, you get out, you get your campsite, and, um, and people will just come up and chat with you. Take a look at your gear, offer you things, be very helpful. Uh, I don't think that has changed a great deal. Uh, but it's definitely uh, something that appears at least in the early 20th century, if not earlier. Right. So uh, probably by the mid-1920s, the, the car had become a mainstay in America culture. How did the car pretty much pour gas on the camping flame in America? <laughs> um the automobile transformed camping. Um, the automobile, uh, you know, initially was a plaything for the rich. You know, it, it didn't have much effect in, until, you know, through the nineteen uh, through nineteen ten, give or take. But then Henry Ford, to his you know everlasting credit, he figured out how to make automobiles cheaply. And in mass numbers, and um, people took to cars like crazy, and the number of people who could camp skyrocketed. Uh, the automobile really made camping available to anybody who could afford a car, and and there were a lot of used cars in short order. And, uh, you know, America really took to the road, and so we see the number of people going camping uh, in the national parks just takes off like a rocket uh, in the by by the 1920s certainly it's just going up very very fast and um, campers love this they didn't see the car many at least most campers they didn't see the car as some sort of you know inappropriate invasion of the of the woods or desert or wherever but rather they saw it as something that facilitated their ability to get into the wild. That is, if nothing else, it could take them to the edge of some roadless area. Uh, but it did allow them to go into such wild places, which for the average person seemed very wild. So the automobile had a huge effect, you know, tremendous effect on camping. And I'm sure the debate between like what was real camping only intensified, but all the the canoe campers were like, oh, these, these car campers, they're, they're ruining the the scene here with their their cars. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, the car. I mean, the automobile uh, probably indirectly is um, responsible for the creation of wilderness in America and the uh, prompting of a lot of backpacking and, as you say, a lot of canoe camping as well. This was. Uh, 
these people, people who were supporting a backpacking and wilderness and canoe areas and protected lake areas and stuff, they saw the automobile as an invasion by um, people who didn't, who who just took advantage of of the ability of the car to get anywhere and and uh, were just creating roads anywhere, uh, getting the government to do that, and um, they then you know. Uh, pressed to get uh, wilderness areas protected for backpackers or wilderness areas for canoe campers. So the, the automobile, um, it very much facilitated the number of campers. But in reaction to that, the automobile also uh, ended up creating places for backpacking and canoe camping too. And the automobile, one of the things it did as well is it pretty much created the infrastructure of camping that we see today. Like you go to any campsite, whether it's a state park or national park, you're going to see this pretty much the same thing. You're going to see like a restroom facility. You're going to see a table, like a cement table or a wooden picnic table with a grill, predestined or preset campsites. You'll see showers and you'll see like the, the, the ubiquitous one-way you know road that goes through. And this started in about the 1930s, right? With um, E.P. Minecki, is that his last name? Meineke. Meineke. Yeah, it's Meineke. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little about him. Well, my, um, if you, uh, just before the 1930s, that, as we said, camping is booming because of the automobile. And lots and lots of campers are coming, especially to the national parks and forests uh, in the West. And there's no regulation. The uh, National Park Service has uh, an approach to regulation, which they refer to as indirect. That is, they don't like to put up signs. They don't like to tell you, you can't park here, you can't do this there, you can't do this. They'd rather, you know, put a rock in your way and, and to get you to not uh, park there or something like that. Well, they didn't want to tell campers, you know, don't camp in places. And so people could camp virtually anywhere in a national park. And they did. And the problem was they particularly liked to all camp in the same places, which would be like Stoneman Meadow at Yosemite or something. And they'd like to be right up against the rivers. And this was causing uh, killing the vegetation, polluting the rivers. Something had to be done about all of this uh, as a result. And then there's all these cars crammed together. The Forest Service approached a gentleman named E.P. Meineke who worked for the Department of Agriculture. He was a plant pathologist. And they said, can you help? He'd help them with other vegetation issues. And they said, look, the campers are basically killing the redwoods, the sequoia, giant sequoias at Sequoia National Park and around the area. Can you help us? Meineke went, took a look and said, yep, yeah, you're right. All these campers in these cars, they're killing the trees because they're running over the roots. So they said, what can we do? And Long story short, Meineke basically developed, designed uh, the modern campground. That is, like the, what you were saying, you now have fixed roads. They're one way, can't go in both directions. You have a camping spur for your car. It's sort of a garage in the forest, if you will. There's a table sitting there. There's a place for your, where your tent is supposed to go. There's supposed to be, should be some vegetation around you. So he sort of, what he did was he created a space that mimicked a domestic space, which you had to fill up. And then there were restrooms that you had to walk to nearby and water fountains or whatever, spigots, things like that nearby. This is all Meineke. And he did this basically in 1932. 
is when he came up with this design, which, as you said, is now just everywhere. Uh, virtually every state national park I've ever been to basically uses this same design for their automobile campgrounds. And uh, Meineke is the, the fellow who put that together. And, and one of the appeals to this for the, for the Forest Service and the Park Service was not just that it eliminated pollution and that sort of thing, but also was the, the parks were being overrun by people. They were being loved to death by campers and the forest. And, uh, but the, they, the uh, administrations didn't have any way to sort of manage that. This, this um, campground gave them uh, a, a tool. That is what it did was, uh, as they say, it unitized the campsites. That is, there's a campground, a campsite, a campsite number one. And when all campsites, all your 38 campsites or 107 or whatever there were, when somebody was in everyone, then the, the authorities could say, campground's full. You can't camp here. <laughs> and previously, they'd not been able to say it was full. People would just say, well, I can cram something in there. I could shove a car in there. It'll be fine. And this gave them an ability to control um, the campers uh, so that they could make space. That, then they added the two-week rule. Or thirty day initially a thirty day rule and then a two week rule is you can only stay for thirty days or you can only stay for two weeks and then you have to leave so somebody else can come in and camp here, and it gave the authorities uh, not only uh, better protection of the environment but it also gave them more control over uh, campgrounds and so that people wouldn't just come and, and which they did and come and camp for three months and um, and make you know basically use up all the space so. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the car democratized camping even more. But then, you, as you talk about in the book, there was sort of a revolt against car camping um, and this sort of emphasis on canoe camping, but also backpacking. But one of the other movements that was going on in America that coincided with the shift was the long trail movement that started um, with, the, with the Appalachian Trail, uh, then the Pacific Crest Trails. How did the long trail movement sort of put the gas on backpacking in America? Well, there the people had been uh, hiking, particularly in the in the Northeast in the Appalachians. Uh, the Appalachian Mountain Club is an old organization which had been about hiking, uh, and they had cabins and stuff like this along. They still do along their trails. But in the early 20th century, 1910s, actually the first long trail, long distance trail is, is called the Long Trail in Vermont. And uh, this was supported by uh, people who wanted to go out and camp as well as hike and just walk along. So they'd have a place to do that. And uh, backpackers, this, these things, they're all coming together. The backpackers had become... Uh, more enthusiastic and they were more active and their equipment was getting, their gear was getting lighter in the early 20th century and they wanted places for themselves. And so um, they pushed to create these long trails. Um, and uh, as you said, the, probably the best known of the early ones is the Appalachian uh, Trail, the AT, uh, stretching whatever it is, 2,000 miles. And then it was followed pretty quickly, at least by the idea of took a little longer to complete the Pacific Crest Trail. And 
I, you know, I think that the significance of these trails and the significance of backpacking in the popular imagination uh, has always remained uh, strong. And uh, in that this is the form of camping, which I, you know, even those people who don't want to practice it, I think would admit that, yeah, you know, there's, you know, it, it's a special form uh, and provides a special experience because you have to walk just like people have always had to uh, until 20th century or whatever. And they could finally get cars, but people for, you know, 10,000 years have had to walk if they wanted to get places. And that's what backpackers do. And it has this special appeal. Um, and I think we see, we can see that uh, popular significance even today in, uh, you know, the, the consequence of Cheryl Strayed's book, Wild, you know, and then the movie being made from it. Uh, you know, th this idea, you know, Cheryl Strayed, she went onto the Pacific Crest Trail to find herself uh, in that long walk. Um, and I've heard this from many people who have done seriously long distance uh, backpacking, which I admit I have not. But um, I talked to one gentleman who – he walked the AT three times, the entire thing. And uh, the last time he did it, uh, at the end, he broke down and just started crying. And he couldn't stop, you know, because he said it, it, it had it, doing that kind of long distance walking puts you in a, a mental state that's simply not reproducible elsewhere. So they're special places. Um, I'm curious, I forgot to ask this, Terrence, but was this whole camping craze, you know, beginning of the 19th century into the middle part of the 20th century, was this a uniquely American thing or were other Western countries also experienced this sort of camping? craze going on? Well, camping uh, is equally popular in Canada uh, to Americans, and it's more or less contemporary with what's happening in the United States. Uh, I don't think it's quite as intense. The forms are practiced elsewhere, but the meaning, I, I think, is really an American experience. I mean, you can go to, you know, France, French or big campers, uh, or Germany or Sweden or, you know, any n number of places around the world, Australia and stuff. And you'll find people who are camping. But the reason they camp is, uh, you know, like in the case of the Europeans in particular, it's an inexpensive form of, uh, you know, vacation. And they'll tell you that. I mean, you know, why, why are you camping? Well, you know, it's cheap um, and uh, allows us to be here. But I think to to say that about American camping, just just see it as something that's inexpensive vacation, misses um, the cultural significance that it has held for us for a long time. You know, it's 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 a means for Americans who don't or aren't comfortable with cities to kind of make up for having to live in them. I mean, we understand you, if you want to have a job and good income and all that today, you're going to more or less going to end up living in a city. Um, but you don't have to like it. <laughs> and camping uh, is is a way to kind of make up for it for a couple of weeks or, or whatever. And that's, um, that, that is unusual. That's something Americans do uh, more than anybody else. Why, you know, you'd have to ask, if you go to Britain, why do they camp? Well, you know, they have other reasons, but not the same as us. So what's the state of American camping today? 
Uh, it's still very strong. Uh, latest surveys I've read uh, put camping, uh, we're talking at least a minimum of 50 million Americans, about one-sixth of the population, go camping every year. This is, and you know, it's, it's in, when you ask people, what do you do in your leisure time? And you give them a list of things and they'll pick them. Uh, camping almost invariably ends up in the top 10. And that's up there with watching television and going to restaurants and stuff like this. Uh, it's ex it remains extremely popular in America. At the same time, I would say it is not as significant. Uh, well, the numbers are still enormous. Um, it's not as culturally significant as it once was. I think um, the, the kind of high point in American history for, for camping as a kind of cultural phenomenon uh, was the 1920s. Uh, it was that car. I mean, the car liberated people to go camping. Everybody went camping. Henry Ford, John Burroughs, Harvey Firestone, and Thomas Edison had these annual camping trips that they did and that were in the news and stuff like this. President Harding joined them on a camping trip. You know, it was, it was enormous at that time. Um, but the total number, of course, is much smaller than now. So, uh, but I, and the other thing I would say about camping today is, I suspect in part it's slowly declining, not seriously, and certainly in backpacking hasn't declined. But the other forms of camping, the number of people doing them seems to be in a kind of slow decline, but not serious. And I would like to think, I mean, I'm not sure exactly why, but I would like to think that one of the reasons is that American cities are becoming more uh, comfortable, a little, uh, there's a little bit more wildness in American cities and the need to, uh, you know, leave the city to go into some place far away, it, you know, isn't quite as necessary anymore. And I say this in part because if you look at pictures, you know, of, of American cities in 1920, <laughs> they are just so bare. There's no street trees and are few and, uh, you know, just little green anywhere. And you compare that now to the efforts that I think we're trying to do nowadays to, to green up our cities, put in more squares, put in more street trees, just, just generally make them, you know, more comfortable uh, in terms of a mix of wild and, and uh, you know, and, and art and human art. Uh, it's, it's perhaps taken a little bit of the, the sting out of the life, life in the city and therefore a little less uh, desire to go camping. Well, Terrence, this has been a great conversation. There's a lot more we could talk about in, in the book, but where can people go to learn more information about the book? Well, I have a Facebook page for the book, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, called Heading Out or Camping in America. I think either one will take you there. But also the book is published by uh, Cornell University Press, and um, they have a website, cornellpress.cornell.edu and you can find out everything about it there and it's uh, uh, you know it's for sale uh, in bookstores online that sort of thing fantastic well Terrence Young thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure oh it's been a real pleasure thank you for asking me to be here my guest today was Terrence Young he's the author of the book Heading Out A History of American Camping it's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere also check out his Facebook page where he posts about camping it's called Heading Out there and you can also check out our show notes at aom.is slash heading out where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic
Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, of you know, the episodes you've listened to, I'd really appreciate if you take a minute or so to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.